Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now the ball hit the chalk it came up all over the place you can't be serious man you cannot be serious that ball was on the line chalk flew up it was clearly in how can you possibly call that remember that guy the show where we mind our memories from nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your hosts james I, I don't know how we can call it that maybe i can get an answer from one of these guys well, I can be serious for a moment because I'm thrilled to be back here with you once again, James. But we have a very special guest. It's actually the umpire from that infamous incident, the man who John McEnroe could not believe could be serious. Please introduce yourself. I'm glad you said that because I went in my head, oh, it's tennis. Oh, wait, is it baseball? Oh, no, now I don't know. Oh, no, oh, no. But it's me, the very special guest, Xavier, who was happy that that was tennis and that his gut feeling was correct. It was just his anxiety that was causing him to second guess it. Yeah, no, the only thing you have to blame is yourself, Xavier. I want to make clear, I'm also not being serious. We love you, Xavier. In fact, we love you so much that I would love to know what's making memories for you right now. Had Pat Fitzgerald been fired by the time we recorded last week? It, that, that happened so slowly, but so quickly, I couldn't remember if he I, had... I, I think it was breaking news shortly before we started recording. Oh, no, he was fired before that. He was... Just to clarify, it is the official position of this show, recorded by three dummies, that Pat Fitzgerald can go fuck himself. I was just thinking about because I read an athletic article earlier today that talked about their Kenosha camp, where a lot of the hazing had started like decades ago and had become full quote-unquote tradition, including a very creepily named Lufa thing that involved all of the offensive linemen getting naked and standing in the doorway and making people have to slide through their naked bodies. Which, we are hey, earning that explicit mark this week, y'all. Hey, hey, that, that's sexual harassment. That is not team bonding. That is sexual harassment, and it should be treated as such. Uh, there have been a lot of reports that look like, oh, no, it's not just a football thing in Northwestern. Baseball coach was fired, and now there's investigations into volleyball and a couple other sports, and it seems like it may just be a school-wide, they let... A lot of hazing go for no reason. That, that's the thing I want to harp on for a moment. Because, like, look, not to make light of all of this, but you're telling me that all of these terrible things were allowed to happen with the only thing that people who are turning a blind eye were getting in return was the completely mediocre to bad output of Northwestern athletics? Like, the Northwestern athletics program was worth all of this shit? They're rich, too. They're rich and have, like, one of the best journalism schools in the country. That was going to be my next point. This, mm -hmm. would, this is like, you're trying to get away with stuff at a school with people whose whole life purpose is to make sure that people don't get away with stuff and that it's reported. And you're simply not good enough for people to ignore this kind of shit. Yeah, not, not, not the best. Uh, hopefully, the, hopefully, I know the president has committed to doing a full university-wide investigation that they will release the entire thing unredacted to the public and not just a original quick 
summary and then two weeks suspension in the middle of the summer. So hopefully they can actually figure something out. And maybe that will shed a light on what other schools are doing, because we know it's not just Northwestern. We know that. If, you know, a, a crappy sports school like Northwestern is doing it, you can assume that schools that take sports even more, quote unquote, seriously, where the, the coaches have even more power, they'll be worse there. But I don't want to dwell on that. Instead, I want to talk about something really fun, which is that the Women's World Cup started today. I will say there was a bit of a worry in New Zealand. There was a mass shooting in Auckland, which for our American viewers may not seem like that big of a deal. In New Zealand, it is a very big deal, and there was a lot of worry about that. But the show did go on. Hannah Wilkinson scored the first goal of the Women's World Cup. And New Zealand, on I believe their 16th try, did win their first ever Women's World Cup game in front of their home fans. And I watched Allie Riley of Angel City FC crying in happiness afterwards, which is really fun. You know, I'm very excited for the Women's World Cup, and I'm hoping for some more fun going forward, including the U.S., I believe, playing tomorrow at this point. What non-American team are we all riding with? It's tough. I talked about this in a a group chat a couple days ago. I think I said Spain. I like Spain with Alexia Pateas, the reigning Ballon d'Or winner. Australia would be cool because their co-hosts, they did also win today, but Sam Kerr, possibly the best striker in the world, did miss that game and is going to miss the next game with a thigh strain. Also, just a little bit sad that there's a lot of the top women's talent in the world missing due to ACL injuries. There's been some really great reporting on how female athletes are four to eight times more likely to have ACL injuries than male athletes. And there are some studies that show it's because, hey, you don't treat them the way you treat male athletes in that you just give them smaller sized men's shoes and have them train on worse surfaces. Well, that was going to be my, my second point is I feel like the women's game in particular, there's a lot of games that end up getting played on field turf which we have pretty good research to show at this point is worse for the body. Much cheaper to maintain, but definitely worse for the athletes that play on it. That was a big issue with the World Cup in Canada last time where they played a lot on turf and the athletes were like, you would never make the men's athletes play on turf fields for a World Cup. Sucks that we don't have some of the best athletes, Vivian Amidema for the Netherlands, Beth Mead for England, Katarina Macario for the USA. But it still should be a fantastic tournament. Really excited to see what happens. Love the Women's World Cup. Love women's soccer, uh, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows. And this is a good chance for everyone who doesn't love women's soccer as much as I do to get into it. It's really good. We got Spain for Xavier. Diaz, how you rolling? Well, so I was looking at it through the lens of who I think you can get a little juice on if you're Mm -hmm. of the betting mindset. Sweden at 18 to 1 seems like it's a bit too long of a number. I do like Sweden at 18 to 1. And the other team that I like is Netherlands, who is in America's group at 22 to 1. So the theory there is America's going to win the group, right? They're going to win the group. Netherlands is going to finish second in the group. And because of that, they're going to be on the opposite side of the bracket. So if they can get through, somebody else beats up on the U.S., that side of the bracket beats up on each other. Maybe Netherlands sneaks into a championship game against the team that really had to struggle to get there. So I think that's a good number on Netherlands, too, at 22 to 1. If the Dutch still had Viv, I think that they would be like a top contender. But as I said, she's one of the ones out with the ACL tear. 
But they, they do still have a lot of really good talent on that team. For the record, I'm exclusively riding vibes and going with the largely crowdfunded Team Jamaica, the Reggae Girls, girls spelled G-U-R-L-Z. Let's fucking They have go. some really good teams. Bunny Shaw. Uh, yeah, no, they're Bunny like... Shaw. Bunny Shaw is phenomenal on Man City. I found out about them. I was like, okay, cool. So that's who I'm supporting. And then it was the opposite of when I decided I was rooting for the Chinichi Dragons, where I got to then find out, oh, and also yeah, they kind of kick ass. They're good, yeah. But enough about that. James, what's making memories for you? Well, we should acknowledge the tour, which pretty much looks like it will end with Jonas Vingegaard wearing, winning his second yellow jersey. I don't want to dwell too much on it because I don't know how it's going to end fully. But today, Pogacar has just not had the race that he needed to have for it. And Pogacar will probably still win the white jersey for the fourth straight year. Like, this is not to say that he is not still incredible. But what people, I think, will take away from this is this is the second straight year where we've had, like, Big crashes caused by fans. And we've had a couple of them this year. And even more than the crashes, what the thing that I will look back on as what cost Pagatra the most was a moment this past week when having a one-on-one Vingard on a really mountainous course where he had a chance, if he could get a good burst, to really make up what at the time was still only a nine-second difference in the GC, the fans and the motorbikes ahead of them just completely stifled that. There just wasn't room to do it. And you shouldn't treat this as a woulda, coulda, shoulda. I don't want to take anything away from Jonas Vingard. I mean, he's won this twice straight now. And like credit where credit is due in the time trials. He went out and won it that day. And he deserves it. Shouts to him. Anyway, that's the tour. The thing that's making memories for me is the fact that I need to finally reconcile that like the Orioles probably don't suck anymore. Yes, finally, please. And- Welcome. Welcome to this reality, James. Well, and here's I I have entertained the idea that they don't suck as early as last year. But frankly, it was a lot easier watching a terrible team if I just went into every game knowing they were a terrible team. And I was still able to enjoy baseball that way. I still loved going to games. I still loved members of the team. As they have slowly, apparently, become something that approaches good. This year, I'm couching my words as much as I possibly can. I've had to let go of the fact that one, all of the guys on this team are not the ones that have hurt me in the past. And two, it's great when your favorite team is winning a lot. And I've very rarely experienced this in my life because as much as I love many, many different sports and many, many different teams, it's not even close how much more I love the Orioles than every single other sporting thing that I am associated with or care about at all. There's nothing in sports I care more about than the Baltimore Orioles. And if you are someone that has listened to the, at this point, hundreds of hours of content we have put out about sports, I want to be very clear. None of that matters to me more than the Orioles. It is difficult to live in a world where there are expectations because it's completely possible that they don't meet those expectations. Hence part of the reason I am still trying to couch them. But the other thing is I've always believed it is silly to be a sports fan with the championship being the only thing that can be considered success. For one, I believe I'm on record on this thing saying that uh, I fundamentally do not believe the Orioles will ever win a championship. I also don't think that I am someone that tries very much to enjoy things despite that. And I think some of what has been so difficult to enjoy about the Orioles this year 
is looking at them and thinking, God damn it, am I going to think this team can win a championship at some point? Is them not going to win a championship at some point in the future going to become a disappointment? I don't know if I'm ready for that, but that sounds like a cart behind a horse. I just want to stick with this horse for now. It's taking me on a wild ride. Uh, fucking go-o's, man. I saw it was kind of like a Punnett Square thing that was breaking down like the nine states of being a sports fan is the combination of like, is your team doing well? Were they expected to do well? Do they project to continue doing well in the future? Right now, you are getting like what I got with like the January 2017 Sixers. You know, TJ McConnell had the game winner in that run. And it's like, okay, they were very bad for a long time. I was watching Sixers games with that exact same mindset that you described. I know they suck, therefore I can enjoy their games. You are right now at that beautiful nadir where they are just now becoming good. They should continue to be good. And you weren't necessarily expecting them to be good. That is the best time to be a sports fan. I am so glad for you to be in this run. And let me just pull it up real quick because back before really anybody believed, I think when the O's got off to that first like two week hot start, I did get a little wager in. Yeah, on, you did. on your O's to win it all. And I just want to confirm, I got them at 120 to 1. Yeah, I mean, I would give them better odds than that now. I would say there's 1% of me that believes that the Orioles could win the World Series. If you'd even said 100 to 1, I might have said, nah, that sounds about right. 120 to 1, I think undersells them. So good but, value on that. But what do we think that number is now? I got them at 120 to 1. 60. 80. Oh my God. You are both way too pessimistic. The O's are. I am the correct amount sixth of pessimistic. Favorite. That's fair. They are sixth favorite to win the World Series right now. Bullshit. 18 to 1. Do you want to guess the five teams that are ahead of them? Dodgers, Rays, Astros, Braves, Rangers. Now it is those top five are a good while clear of the Orioles. So you got that Braves at about seven to two. You got the Dodgers plus 430. You got the Rays plus 500, the Astros plus 850, then the Rangers plus 950. So there is a clear tier break after the Rangers, but the best of the rest, O's 18 to one, Blue Jays 19 to one, Phillies 20 to one. You know what else is good odds? A better just put $70,000 on the U.S. women to beat Vietnam tomorrow at minus 20,000 money line. The 70,000 so bet gets 350 bucks. 350 richer. Good lord. Putting down 70,000 to win 350. Man's just slinging around the down payment on a very nice home like it's nothing. Well, uh, the O's have not made any financial memories for you yet, Diaz. So, what in the meantime, if I may ask, is doing that? Well, I do get paid to do their broadcast, so I guess it is somewhat financial memories. Um, but <laughs> they the, got to keep playing at this point in order to keep paying you. Well, un unfortunately, they are not the highest seed remaining, so they are on the road. They were on the road, as the listener hears this. The Annapolis Blues, with an all-time game in the Mid-Atlantic Conference Championship, and like, let's set the scene here. They lost to Alexandria on the last game of the regular season to ruin their invincible season. They were the only team to beat them all year. When we saw the bracket breakdown, we knew Annapolis takes care of business in their semifinal. Alexandria has to go on the road, but we were eyeing this matchup. The Blues take care of their business. 
Alexandria played to a nil-nil draw through 120 minutes at Greenville, North Carolina. They win in penalty kicks, and then we come back to Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium for the championship. And Alexandria brought a decent-sized supporter section. Like, conservatively, about 200 people came from Alexandria, Virginia, made this trip. And that's about an hour, hour and a half trip. So it's doable, but it's not nothing. And this game just had everything. The Blues score about 20 minutes in to go up one nothing. The Blues get a red card early in the second half. Alexandria pulls level. Alexandria gets a person sent off. In the 83rd minute, the Blues commit a foul in the box. Barnard scores for Alexandria. And it was, it was a, a great celebration that he had because after the first goal that we scored, Gordon Burnlore did the... Ronaldo celebration where he does spins a circle around, jumps. If you've ever seen Cristiano Ronaldo score a goal, it's that thing he always does after he scores. When Barnard scored in the 83rd minute to apparently give Alexandria the win, he did the exact same thing. Because of all the red cards, because of all the fights and all the disputes, there were seven added minutes. And as we tick into the seventh of those minutes, a long throw into the box from Miles Lamb gets headed out. It falls to Jacob Merle, who is still playing at Georgetown. But in this moment, he was in Annapolis Blue. The attempted clearance fell right to his foot on the edge of the box. And without taking a touch to settle it, without anything, he just volleys it right out of the air. One of the greatest shots you'll see, period. I don't care what level of soccer it is. It's a one-time volley put right into the upper left corner. Absolute scenes at Marine Corps Stadium. People going nuts. And it's like, it's a packed stand. About 8,500 came out, which did break the record that Annapolis had previously set. They have the four most attended games now in NPSL history. They had six home games, and they had the top four most attended games in the history of the league. It goes to extra time. Another red card for Alexandria in extra time. So now we finish this game playing 10v9. It goes to PKs. Both teams make saves, but at no point is Annapolis ever trailing. And of course... The wonderkin, Jacob Merle, who led the Mid-Atlantic in goals, who led the team in goals, hits home the winning penalty. Just truly what the Annapolis Blues have been all year is a success story. And they show that this is a country that's begging for soccer. We're begging for quality soccer. We're begging for it all over the country. And it's a reminder that it's not just about the MLS. Like what makes, for example... English soccer so fascinating and why people love the FA Cup is because at every level of that pyramid, fans are coming out and selling out games. There are people going out for fifth tier games who are just as fanatic about their team, if not more so than your Man United's and your Liverpool's. And Annapolis is a testament to the fact that if you do it the right way, and they've been doing it the right way all year, they've been engaging with the community, they want to be true, honest members of the community. You know, if you build it, they will come. And Annapolis has come out. Annapolis has a professional sports team. I don't know what the final vision is for ownership. I have to imagine it's going up to USL. NPSL is still a semi-pro league, but it's it's a fully professional atmosphere. It's a fully professional organization. And truly, I've been doing this for like over a decade at this point. That's easily in the top five of events I've gotten to cover was doing that game. So up the blues incredible and let's hope that by the time you're listening to this they will be in the final four of the npsl 
two wins to go. I forget who they're playing in the semifinal, but it's Motown FC is who's hosting this quadrant. So here's to a big victory. Here's to two more big victories. Up the Blues, baby. Making memories. Up the Blues, indeed. And I'm glad that you talked about the incredible fan support that the Blues have, because I think that segues nicely into what James wanted to talk about today. No, it absolutely does. I mean, that, my fandom with the Orioles, your fandom of women's soccer, like all we do here is talk about fandom. And we all have stories where that fourth wall that exists between us and the events we watch, I mean, we're talking about kind of those special moments where people who enjoy the sport get to break the barriers between them and the sport. That being said, while that's special, while that's certainly some of the greatest memories that we have, there's also a lot of toxic sides to fandom but there's there's a really seminal experience i want to point to for a second so on march 30th 1981 that's when john hinckley tried to assassinate ronald reagan and he did that because he was obsessed with jodie foster specifically jodie foster when she plays a childhood prostitute in the movie taxi driver and so he successfully shot the president he did not successfully assassinate ronald reagan i debated whether to say unfortunately there for a moment anyway uh (laughs) (laughs) The reason I bring this up is I think that's like one of the ultimate examples of this barrier between things that seem almost beyond our normal world, things that we view from this distance all of a sudden collide with the very real human environment that they exist in, as dangerous as that may be sometimes. We're talking about, when we talked about James Jones the other day, Malice at the Palace, excellent example. Also in 2009, there was an example where Roger Federer playing tennis and a fan comes up and accosts him and it turned out the fan was like trying to drape a flag over him but still for a moment seemed very dangerous ted robinson who is on the nbc broadcast commented on this there should be zero tolerance for that and of all sports this is the one that experienced the absolute worst with the nightmare of my guy today i want to talk to you all about monica sellis yep i i I felt that one coming please Tell us you about know, it. I have no idea what you're talking about. You definitely <laughs> didn't pay me talking about. Here's some foreshadowing. Xavier had a category called backstabbers at one point, And I thought about bringing up Monica Sellis for that, but I did not. I have been saving her because I wanted to talk about that perspective in particular and how it kind of like warps things and how incidents like that can then sort of change the fandom experience around an athlete, around a guy. But let's get to the guy. On December 2nd, 1973, we're in Yugoslavia. Specifically, we are in a town called Novi Sad, which is going to be in modern-day Serbia. And this is where a mother named Esther and a father named Karoli are going to give birth to our girl, Monica Selis. She does also, at the time, have an older brother, Zoltan. And by all reports, super happy family, super close family. In fact, it is actually Karoli, her dad, is her first coach as she starts to take up the sport of tennis. She's four or five. He's just kind of getting her into the sport of tennis. But there was one very formative thing that he did, which was that he taught her this very distinctive two-handed grip for both her forehand and backhand. At all times, Monica maintains a two-handed grip on her tennis racket. But this is not a professional thing for Carly. In fact, his day job is a cartoonist. He is a cartoonist for a couple of magazines at the time, Denevnik and Magyar Zol. And these are two of the major media sources for the ethnic Hungarian population here in modern-day Serbia, current Yugoslavia at this time. Yugoslavia is like the only time that the kind of haphazard map drawing that normally takes place in like the global south and Middle East 
has uh, been done by white people to other white people. But that's basically the problem with Yugoslavia is that it's just- Austria-Hungary had a very similar problem. Sure, but this is literally just, Yugoslavia means Southern Slavs. So they just took all of the different Southern Slavic populations and grouped them under one. And it's not a good plan. Everything that happened after the Ottoman Empire dissolved was just, let's just fuck with this over here so we don't have to deal with it. You're doing that, you're doing that, you're doing that. We don't want to care about, like, a third of Europe and the Middle East that is now not Ottoman. Like, we're, we're going to stay over here, but we're, like, you all as a group just kind of get along. Uh, it does not happen. The tensions are getting a little worse here in the 1980s. And in particular, like, some of the ethnic populations that exist, like the Hungarians in Serbia... That is where some of those tensions are being particularly felt. And so in 1986, they send Monica to Florida. She and Zoltan go there because she traveled to Miami recently during a youth tennis tournament. She caught the eye of Nick Bolateri. Or Bolateri, I don't know, Xavier, you might be able to correct me on this, because it's the same tennis teacher of Andre Agassi. Ooh. He is the mastermind behind Andre Agassi. And also, IMG Academy didn't entirely, like, process that previously, that this all started as a tennis school initially. But it is a tennis school. And it's got these very early people in Andre Agassi and Monica Seles. She's coming in just a couple of years after him. Agassi turns pro at the age of 16 in 86 as she arrives. Monica in 1989 turns pro at the age of 14. So take that, Andre Agassi. This is, by the way, after the whole family's been reunited. They're all safe. And three months after she debuts as a pro there, she has already won her first title against Chris Ever, who is admittedly like just about to retire. But that is an all-time tennis great to win your first title against. That same year, she does also make the semis at the French Open. It's the first time she's ever made a Grand Slam semi. She does lose to number one rate Steffi Graf, but it is a pretty good rookie year, and she ends up getting rewarded with a number six world ranking by the end of the year. We get to 1990. A couple early losses, but then in March in Miami, Celis wins the uh, Lifton International Players Championship. And that is what is going to begin a 36-match, six-tournament-spanning win streak. This includes, within it, a Lufthansa Cup win in Berlin over the German Steffi Graf. Very spicy. Get to the French Open. She returns there, and she once again faces Steffi Graf in the finals, and she wins, becoming the youngest ever to win the French Open at the time. 16 years, six months then finishes out the year, she wins a couple of tournaments against Martina Navratilova, who's going to be another recurring character. And then the season finale is the Virginia Slims Championship, sponsored by cigarette <laughs> brand Virginia Slims. And she's the youngest ever to win this season-ending title. That smooth flavor. Was the Lipton International sponsored by Lipton Tea? Of, of <laughs> course it was. Obviously. Dipping tea on the side of the tennis court. Tea and cigarettes. What a, what a combination. I mean, tea and certain kinds of cigarettes, sure. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Anyway, it's 1991 now, and Monica Seles enters God mode. This begins with her second ever Grand Slam win. She makes it to the Australia Open against Jana Novotna. And then by March, Seles has supplanted Graf as number one. In June, she defends her French Open title against the former youngest French Open winner, Arancha Sanchez Vicario. And then later that season at Wimbledon, Monica is sadly in the middle of being like laid up for six weeks due to shin splint. 
but she does make it back to face Navratilova in September at the U.S. Open, where she wins and recaptures the number one ranking that had briefly gone back to graph because of that injury. Then she wraps up the season with a repeat at the Virginia Slims Championship. This, at this point, was the 16th tournament that she had entered of 1991. It was the 16th finals that she'd reached, and it was the 10th title. And God Mode is not a one-year phenomenon. In 1992, starts with a title defense in Australia. In fact, she defends all three of the Grand Slam titles that she had won. That repeat in the U.S. is over Arantxa. The French Open three-peat is against Steffi Graf. That just leaves Wimbledon, where she does reach the finals. She once again faces Steffi Graf fucking dominates her in two games 6-2-6-1 Steffi Graf still got grass on this one at this point but there is one potential factor beyond just the grass Wimbledon was the boiling point for some annoyance that Graf among others had for Monica's general play Monica shares the origin with Agassi of Balotieri she also shares the reputation with Agassi as being one of the players that really brought grunting into the game yep so part of this is that distinctive two-handed thing, you know, and a lot of athletes will say that it is this release of energy. It's natural, it's not controllable. And like Celis, for the record, apparently had like done this forever because of this style. Like even as a child, that was just naturally how she played into that two-hand style. But opponents of it will say it's a distraction, particularly in tennis. They'll say that it messes up their timing and that it's like unnecessary gamesmanship. And this being the early grunting period of tennis, there's a lot more instances about people complaining about it. Like nowadays they do have rules where if you grunt too late, you can lose the point. I saw that happen to Djokovic in Wimbledon. There are very loud grunts, but as long as you do it while you're hitting the ball, it's usually okay. But if you have a delayed grunt, that's when you'll usually get penalized. Sure, and I think, just like you're saying here, Wimbledon already, like, with its fucking all-white dress code and stuff, this is kind of the epicenter where, like, any complaints for it exist because it's a little more hoity-toity than even the rest of tennis, which is impressive. The Queen's tennis. The Queen's tennis. Well, the King's tennis now, I suppose. It's still the Queen. (laughs) It's always the Queen. I mean, it was the Queen's tennis in this Wimbledon tournament. And, like, in the quarterfinals, people are saying, hey, what's up with all this grunting, Monica? In the semis against Navratilova, she is formally warned at this point. So now if she does any grunting, just might get her a point loss at any given time. So because of this, like, probably throws off her game a little bit. Also, Steffi Graf's very good on grass. But it is just also this kind of cold attitude to a precocious young star beyond just the grunting. When this 92 season ends, she is just 19, still number one in the world, and she has just been so completely better than everybody else in the time that she's been competing at this point that with the grunting, there's just a little bit of enmity. And that's something we can all say in retrospect there. It's not necessarily said at the time, but it's kind of an understood thing that some people are annoyed by Monica Sellis. It is now 93. She's going to come out guns blazing. That French Open three-peat from last year, she enjoyed that. So she decides she'd like to three-peat at Australia as well. And she does. Then she goes to Chicago. There is a different tournament sponsored by Virginia Slims. (laughs) But she's just as good. The taste is just as smooth. And she beats Navratilova again. In this God Mode period, she's been in 34 tournaments, 33 final, 22 titles, and of those, seven have been Grand Slams. She has an eighth one from that 90 French Open. 159 and 12 
as a professional tennis player at this point, 55 and one in the grand slams during this God mode period. And that only one was the loss to Steffi Graf. And this brings us to Hamburg, Germany on April 30th. And this is the site of our memorable fan interaction. It is the corner finals at the Citizens Cup. After taking the first set, Celis has her opponent, Magdalena Maliva, on the ropes, 4-3. And if you could see the bracket right now, much as Diaz was saying when you were looking at that Annapolis one, Graf is on her way to the finals as well, against actually a different Maliva. There are three Maliva siblings in the Citizens Cup here. <laughs> and basically, we're setting up another potential finals bout between Monica Celis and Steffi Graf. It's what defines women's tennis right now. Like, Graf had won eight Grand Slam titles before Celis came in, but since 1990, they've won 11 of the 13. That most recent one being that 93 Australian Open. Very often, the two of them in the finals. And beyond any of that, we're here at the Citizens Cup in Germany. And so we've already mentioned one time that Celis has beaten Graf here in Germany. It's meaningless in the terms of the tournament's existence, but she has fans here. And it is time for us to meet one of them. It's a 38-year-old named oh. Gunter Parch. If you do not know what is about to happen, do please buckle up. They take the break and play. The camera follows Celis to her seat as she like drinks water. She's fiddling with her racket a little bit. And then we fade to a zoomed out shot of the court. And there's a score graphic that comes up with Maliva's face. But the audio feed is still live as we've had this shift in what we're seeing. And you just hear a scream all of a sudden. Having watched a lot of videos leading up to watching this one, I realized that if you've heard Monica Sellis play and heard that grunt, there's no question for a second who that scream is from. We cut back. The first thing you see is Gunter Parch when we cut back to the moment. Being restrained and the camera moves around, you can see something is clearly wrong with Monica. Gunter Parch had come to this match with a 10-inch boning knife and the intent to stab Monica Sellis with it. He approached the fence of the court during this delay and simply reached over and stabbed her. Like, did not have to do really anything other than that because they were close enough to the athletes to do so. He is restrained as he winds back up for another stab. Monica is rushed to the hospital. He luckily only got about an inch and a half in. Still a pretty serious knife wound, but missed the lungs, missed the spine. But in the immediate aftermath, the number one thing that's on everyone's mind is like, why? Some people think like, oh shit, is this ethnic tensions because of the Yugoslav wars. She is both Serbian and ethnically Hungarian, so she's received some death threats for that. But as Parch is complying in custody, we soon learn that, nope, he's just an East German fan who is obsessed with Steffi Graf and just wanted to hurt slash kill Monica to the point where she could no longer compete in tennis and Steffi Graf would become the undisputed number one tennis player in the world again pretty fucked man yeah yeah luckily like we said it is not nearly as bad as it could have been she's in the hospital for a little bit she struggles in general but she especially struggles kind of with what happens with parch this man at this point has violated the sacred contract between fan and sport like it's it's something that has frustrated me a lot of the time watching this tour this most recent one like look you can say whatever you want to say you can't me. say whatever you want to say because that leads to the italian True. problem True. of insane amounts of racism True. So. to me like where the line exists is where the playing field is i will criticize somebody for being slow and unskilled okay. and unathletic the furthest i will go 
is maybe I'll say their middle name. Just like in that like annoying tone that your parents used to say. Look up the middle name. You could say that. That's as personal as you can get, I think. What's Jokic's middle me. name? I don't think he has one. Oh, my God. He doesn't have a middle name. Oh, my God. He's taking Roy off the grid. <laughs> Roy doesn't have a middle name. <laughs> so Gunter Parch spends six months in pretrial detention. Then he is found to be psychologically abnormal. That was the legal phrase used. So he gets two years of probation and psychiatric treatment for the rest of his life. And so she swears off Germany forever. What people seem to be forgetting is that this man stabbed me intentionally and he did not serve any punishment. And while I certainly have moral struggles with incarceration as a whole, and and I think we should all question what exactly it is that we want to come from the justice system and its retribution, the one thing I think we can all agree on is it should largely be centered around what the victims want. And she does seem to feel pretty goddamn unsatisfied by the relative light treatment of this man who more or less tried to ruin her life. He did get banned from going to tennis matches, though. And isn't that punishment enough? I can't imagine what I would possibly do if I could never watch another tennis match. She feels unsafe. And between this and between a lot of other issues with binge eating and depression, she takes a two-year break even after recovery. She steps away, really, like, kind of struggles, for lack of a better word. Almost immediately, like, the return of Monica Seles is kind of fictionalized in a way where people, I think, almost assume it won't happen. Like, even by October 93, people are just making jokes about it. That is when a Seinfeld episode called The Lip Reader comes out. You guys familiar with the Seinfeld episode? I, so I remember there was, like, the biggest misunderstanding was, oh, that girl's saying I want to sleep with you. And it was actually that they were going to sweep up. That's the okay. biggest misunderstanding I remember. So that is the A plot, and that is absolutely correct. We don't care about the A plot. We care about the unimportant shit where Kramer has become a ball boy at US Open. <laughs> because this is where Kramer then, during Monica Sells' return match, headfirst collides with her, giving her a concussion. Uh, oh my. Larry David likes doing that kind of thing. Because th- th- there's a Curb episode where he trips up Shaq, too. <laughs> well, and this is the, I want to be clear. Monica Sells is not in this episode. Just like George Steinbrenner was in all the episodes. Exactly. Exactly. But joking about it aside, that's early. That's the first six months. It's not another year and a half before she's really coming back. And there had been this coldness towards Monica. But man, you know what makes you really sympathetic is getting very literally stabbed in the back. When she returns, there is like a rallying behind her. We want Monica to succeed now. She comes back. They had talked in 93 about potentially freezing her ranking. At the time, they asked 17 top players. 16 voted no, one abstained. But now in 95, UTA, they decide, no, we are going to reinstate her with her number one ranking. And what's kind of surprising to me, and I think what really highlights that change in the opinion, is the person that says that is the WTA president, who is her ex-rival, Martina Navratilova. And like, there's a couple objections from some of the people like Arantxa, who are going to have their seating in the tournaments affected by this. But even Steffi Graf is like, still number one at this point, said, yeah, I'm fine with that. Monica Seles does come back as number one, and she's no longer a Yugoslavian tennis player because there is no longer a Yugoslavia. So she has now become a naturalized U.S. citizen. 835 days after that attack, she goes to Toronto where they're hosting the 1995 Canadian Open. 
She wins and sets the tournament record for fewest games dropped by a winner in her return from stabbing. Also, voluntary buddy, Andre Agassi does win the men's championship that year there. That's what happens when you become an American. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most unnecessarily patriotic thing I think you've ever said. You know what? It's Women's World Cup time. Tomorrow, Vietnam is my most hated country in the world, and I want them to lose 20 to nothing. Just, just the only hours. thing that will make you, me... You want to so drop some bombs on Vietnam, you're saying? Okay. No, okay. I, I, I want to okay, see Kissinger. Alex Morgan go top bins so many times on Vietnam that their players just feel so disheartened they walk off the pitch in Australia and then just go live their lives. You, you want to chase mean, Vietnamese off their half of the territory? Man, Xavier. Listen, let you know me what? just say, after Donald Trump's presidency, I think Agent Orange has already done enough damage in the, in the <laughs> most recent past. I think God we've seen enough. Damn it. Um, well, shit, and here we are at the U.S. Open, speaking of patriotism. <laughs> She's dropped to number two, but this is her first Grand Slam back, and she makes it all the way to the final. She loses a nail-biter in the first set, 8-6. It is a dominant second set, 6 nothing. It is a heartbreaking 6-3 loss in the tiebreaker to Steffi Graf. Uh, but that's okay, because we've got 1996 now. She's not done with just the one half-season return. We go to Australia. Graf isn't there, but Celis absolutely is. Celis comes in and wins her very first slam since the accident, her ninth overall. She struggles in France this year. It is in the quarters, and Graf wins. And she doesn't even make it out of her section in Wimbledon. And Graf wins again. U.S. Open, she's still looking for that 10th slam, reaches the finals, loses 7-5-6-4 to Steffi Graf, who has just won her 21st Grand Slam now. Appropriately, that's kind of the sunset for Steffi Graf. That is the second to last. She wins one more to finish with 22 overall. But that's kind of the end of her reign, and it is largely going to be the end of any success in this realm on Celis's part. It's, it's wild. The rivalry would have lined up so perfectly if not for that gap caused by that rivalry. I, I thought about that a lot. We fast forward, though, to 1998. Carol Lee passes away. This is weeks before the French Open. So she's lost her dad. She's lost her first coach. And she is going to where everything started for her. She's dropped a little bit in the rankings, but she beats the number three and the number one on her way to the finals. She doesn't face Graf. That would be a little too perfect. She does face Arantxa, the person that she dethroned as the youngest French Open winner, and one of the people that complained about her getting her ranking when she came back. So there is this third pivotal tie-breaking set. And man, if only life worked out so neatly, Arantxa wins. That is the last ever Grand Slam final of Sells' career. She consistently makes quarters and semis for a while, and she's this kind of feted and loved player. She's a veteran to all of the younger ones coming up the tournament, constant tournament presence, and really respected within the realm, which is hugely different to when she was the precocious young Umstar kicking everyone's ass before that violent assault. And I, I don't want to make it sound like she does not continue to have other measures of success. She made her first Olympics in 96, but in 2000 now, she does lose in the semis to Venus Williams, who's going to win gold here in Sydney. But in these semis, she does win her first ever and only Olympic medal, a bronze. And she wins the Fed Cup with the United States three times as an international competition, kind of similar to the Ryder Cup. Finally, in 2003, she has this foot injury that just kind of like contributes to 
some bad play for a little bit. Her only ever first round exit in the 03 French Open. While official retirement comes in 2008, she does not play another professional match after that. And she retires as this universally beloved figure. But, I mean, you can ask Martina Navratilova. This is a direct quote from her. She would have won so much more. We'd be talking about Monica with the most Grand Slam titles with Margaret Court or Steffi Graf. Steffi had 22, but she didn't have anyone to play against. This guy changed the course of tennis history, no doubt about that. Want to make clear real quick, that last guy that I just said, that is a lowercase g. We are not giving Gunter Parsh any kind of capitalization for the G when he's referred to as a guy. Can we also not capitalize Margaret Court because she's an awful human being? Sure. You want to do <laughs> Margaret Court E coming style? Quick note on Gunter Parsh. He does live a very low-key life after this. I mean, he doesn't stab any other tennis players, so I guess he learned his fucking lesson, but doesn't have a great life. He suffers some strokes later on. He does get what I think is maybe one appropriate punishment. Not that I'm wishing death on anyone, but do you want to know what age Gunter Parch died at? 68. 68 is absolutely correct, Xavier. Yes. <laughs> he does not get to be nice. Uh, so he dies that way. Uh, it is definitely like something that inspired a lot of people to some extent, because there's this Christian pop group in Australia called the Young Elders. And, you know, they hear about Monica's attack. And so they write the song, Fly, Monica, Fly. It's on an EP. They send it to her. And she says it inspires her through the recovery. I tried so hard to find this song. I will tell you that exactly one MP3 of this song existed on the internet at some point, because I found on a forum, someone asking for a copy of it, where the guitarist for that song Peter Hazelwood replied, oh, it's here on my MySpace. And I went to that MySpace link and the MP3 is dead. The good news is that's not even the only song that was written in 2003 about Monica Sella. So I've got another one for you, folks. And then Monica the blade came, Monica like God spitting on you and knife in your back. Like God spitting? On you. God spinning on you, the knife in your back. That's by Dan Byrne, the song Monica. And then wouldn't you know it, a few years later, we have a third song written about the Monica Sellis attack that I would also like to share with you right now. Tennis That was Celis by the Detroit shoegaze band Majesty Crush. A cultural icon. Her impact is obvious. Her talent's unquestionable. Her greatness is perhaps unrealized. But her status is undeniable. I posit to you that Monica Celis is a guy. That's my bid for her this week. It's a very strong pitch. I honestly did not know about the stabbing incident until we started recording this. I just remembered when I was watching tennis when I was probably like three or four, so like mid 90s. Oh, this like Celis is like always number one. No matter what, Celis is always ranked number one. And now I know it's because she was stabbed, which I think is a fair trade off. If you get stabbed, you get to be number one. You know, fuck off other 17 people that are worse than Monica Celis. Again, the fact that like, it is Navratilova. It is the person that, frankly, got their ass whooped a lot by Monica Seles that pushes for that to come back. I, I think really kind of speaks to how her fandom grows because of the insanity of this one fan. Right. I mean, she's probably not featured in a Seinfeld episode if she wasn't stabbed. At least not, not until much, much later. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, some, some good, I guess, came of it. Not really. 
It's pretty bad. It's pretty much all bad. Um, it, it is a memorable fan interaction, though, is it not? Oh, it's a very memorable one. And not one that has gotten any easier to look back on with the passing of time. The incident I want to talk about today was a very traumatic event in the history of the Chicago Cubs. If we go back to 2003, it's game six at Wrigley Field. It has been 95 years since the Chicago Cubs have won a World Series. It has been 58 years since a man named Billy showed up with a goat and was denied entry into Wrigley Field, and he put a curse on the Cubs that said, you will never again play in the World Series. 58 years have passed since that incident, but right now it's looking pretty damn good for the Cubbies. They were up 3-1, lost game five, but they're back home at Wrigley Field for game six. They're up 3-2, and in the game, we're in the top of the eighth inning. There's one down. They're up 3-0. Runner on second, Juan Pierre, very good base runner, but he's only representing run number one. We're not really worried at this point. Luis Castillo is up to bat. He fouls off a Mark Pryor pitch down the left field line. And infamously, those poles at these classic stadiums down left field, you can think of Fenway as well, but also especially in Wrigley Field. There's not a lot of room in that foul territory. So they lift this ball. There's a man. He's wearing headphones. He's wearing a Cubs hat. His name's Steve Bartman. He tries to catch the ball. He leans a little bit over the railing and makes contact with the ball before it's able to fall into the left fielder's glove. Now, it's all fine, except the fielder immediately slams his glove down, furious with this fan. He's begging for fan interference. The umpire would actually later concede he should have called fan interference. There was photo evidence that Steve Bartman broke the plane and entered into the playing field. In another world, this could have been out number two. But in the world we live in, this led to Luis Castillo walking, which led to a wild pitch. Pryor gets it to 0-2 on Yvonne Rodriguez, but he singles. This represents the first run, but that's fine because Miguel Cabrera comes up and he hits a tailor-made double play ball to Alex Gonzalez, who promptly boots it. The bases are now loaded. Derek Lee doubles, 3-3 game. Kyle Farnsworth comes in now, intentionally walks Mike Lowell to load the bases. Jeff Conine hits a sack fly. Todd Hollinsworth is intentionally walked. Mike Mordecai, who led off the half inning, it's a bases clearing double to make it 7-3. Another relief pitcher is put in. Mike Reminger gives up a single to Juan Pierre to make it 8-3. Finally, Luis Castillo comes back up, pops out the second base. From this fan incident, the Marlins go from 3-0 down to 8-3 up. And as at the time, unproblematic announcer Tom Brenneman said on the call, a lot of Cubs fans have to be wondering right now if the curse of the Billy Goat is alive and well wasn't the curse of the Billy Goat. And as we know, the Cubs do finally go on to win the World Series in 2016, which allows us to look back on that incident in a somewhat brighter light. But a man who is oscillated through time between forgiving and not forgiving Steve Bartman is the left fielder who is in position to make that catch. A member of the most famously misnomered family in the history of baseball. We're talking about the Alou family, and we're talking about Moises Alou. Moises Alou is a good one. I admit, I had kind of forgotten who the left fielder was. So immediately upon recognizing, okay, well, it's not Bartman himself. It's just whoever collided with Bartman. Love it. The Tony Tarasco of the Cubs. The Tony Tarasco of the Cubs. But Moises actually had a pretty good career of his own. And it's interesting how he got there. First off, I mentioned the misnomer. 
we mean the literal to misname in this instance because Moises Alou is born Moises Alou Rojas Beltre, July 3rd, 1996 in Atlanta, Georgia. The thing with Spanish naming traditions is you take on both of your parents' last names. The paternal last name goes first. Maternal last name goes second. So what this creates is, for example, Roberto Clemente's legal name is Roberto Clemente Walker. But everybody still knows him as Roberto Clemente. Moises is the son of Felipe Alou, the first Dominican to ever play in the major leagues. So we now know what Spanish naming traditions are. However, the gringo that signed Felipe Alou to the Giants all the way back in the day did not know these because Felipe Alou's full name is Felipe Rojas Alou. The scout sees this and says, okay, whatever, Rojas is his middle name and Alou is his last name. So the contract was officially signed as Felipe Alou. Felipe Rojas never played for the Giants, but Felipe Alou indeed did. The fact that we're going to get to a second member of the family entering the major leagues and that they didn't feel like they had enough clout at that point to maybe correct someone. Well, I also related to like the, the Braves player. Do you remember Matt Diaz? Only in so far as you've talked about his name being incorrect before. Right. Well, and he's called Diaz and not Diaz, which is obviously the correct pronunciation. When his grandfather emigrated to the States, the bosses were, again, very white and pronounced it as Diaz. And he was so terrified to correct them at risk of being fired that he just went with it. And so now the family name for his family is pronounced Diaz. So a lot of fear amongst, you know, 1950s Latinos that they might get kicked out. So we kind of just went with whatever the white people were saying. You know, if they want to give us a cool nickname, we'll take it. If they want to call us by our wrong last name, as long as I'm getting paid to play baseball, baby. So thus, the Alou family is forged in Major League Baseball. Uh, Felipe becomes the first Dominican to play in the Major Leagues. Felipe would also later go on to become the first Dominican manager in the Major Leagues. You could do a whole story about Felipe himself, but uh, we're not talking about him. We're talking about Moises. And Moises actually was not drawn to baseball at first because he grew up in a, in a fairly well-off neighborhood in Santo Domingo in Dominican Republic. And the thing about urban spaces is there's not a lot of open fields, but there are a lot of concrete patches that you can put 10-foot rims on. The people's courts. No, the people's courts for sure, but you know they can be fairly unforgiving on your joints. And uh, you know we'll touch on that more a little later. So Moises, Grew up playing basketball predominantly. In fact, he did not play organized baseball at all until he reached the age of 18 when he enrolled at Canada College in Redwood City, California. When he enrolls at Canada College, very quickly, scouts take notice of two things. His very raw natural athletic ability and his last name. Holy shit, there's another Alu playing out here very quickly make the connection, and he's obviously now got a much closer eye on him. Canada was a good place, though, to go as a relative unknown to be developed in baseball because he's not the only major league alumnus of Canada College, uh, which is, again, just a two-year community school in California. The current Padres manager, Bob Melvin, played his college ball at Canada and became the first alumnus to play in the major leagues when he played for the Tigers in 85. And Harold Reynolds, famously of Baseball Tonight, now of the MLB Network, also an alumnus of Kenyatta College. 
So not a bad school for a, a community college to boast those three, three alumni is solid. More than Temple has in the major league. You know that. <laughs> so he's newer to the sport, but he does have one old school approach. Batting gloves are very common at this point. Moises doesn't wear batting gloves. He does do something, though, to his hands that a couple people might approve of. Bear Grylls might be one of them. Patches O'Houlihan might be another. He toughens up his hands by pissing on them, soaking those babies in his fresh urine. So, I mean, it contains uric acid. Is there any science behind that helping? I mean, I certainly haven't experimented. I wonder if there was a sports science episode on that at one point. John Brankus, I wonder if he ever did an episode of that. But that's what he did. Maybe if Steve Bartman knew this, would have kept his distance. But it, it works well enough for Moises that by the time that he graduates from Kenyatta two years later, he is the number two overall pick in the January draft. This is kind of comparable to maybe like the NFL supplemental draft. You still had your regular amateur draft in the summer. This was for people who became eligible in that gap in between. And it was the Pirates that selected him, number two overall. Doesn't take long for him to get up. By 1990, he's called up. But he would appear in just two games for the Pirates before they decide to send him up to, we're going to remove the teal day. Now it's just Canada. He's going to go to Montreal. And he only plays 14 games there before he had this nagging shoulder injury that the Expos just wanted to get taken care of. He gets surgery, and he ends up missing the entire 1991 season. 92 is his first fully healthy year. He enters into a full-time role. He hits 282 with a 383 OBP, 783 OPS, nine homers and 56 RBI across 115 games. That's good enough for him to finish second in Rookie of the Year voting behind Eric Karos. 93, continuing that same form. It's a pretty good year for the Expos. They finished second in the NL East that year behind the Philadelphia Phillies. But Moises is having a real good year. His numbers are up basically across the board. 286 uh, with an 824 OPS, 18 homers. It's a game against those Pirates in the middle of September. Uh, He hits a single to the left. And he's rounding first. He's thinking too, but he slams on the brakes. And when he slams on the brakes, he suffers a compound fracture of his ankle. There is video of it. You can find it. It's not good. It's very bad. Basically, his leg is bending as if his ankle is about six to eight inches higher up than it is. Um, Baby. Kevin Ware adjacent. Paul George adjacent. Not as bad as those, but adjacent for sure. On the spectrum to those, it's getting dark. If those are a 10, this was like a 7.5. Okay. It's a real bad injury as is apparent pretty quickly after like his natural athleticism is like pretty sapped as a result of this. He's not as fast. You know, he used to be able to play center field. He's kind of relegated to those corner outfield spots now, but he doesn't really care. I mean, he heals pretty quickly from this comes back in time for opening day, 1994. And he has himself a great year. He earns his first all-star appearance Hits 339 with a 397 OBP and a 989 OPS across 107 games. That's good enough for third in MVP voting. Finishes behind the winner, Jeff Bagwell, in second place, most generic name possible, Matt Williams. And, I mean, the Expos are just on fire. 
coming out of the all-star break, they have a big series against the Braves, who are kind of the favorites in the National League. Take care of business. And as we reach the middle of August, they're, they have the best record in all of baseball. And as we reach the middle of August... A, a 1980s Summer Olympics happens. The CBA for MLB expires. The players officially go on strike. Uh, and after about a month of this strike, it is deemed that MLB will abandon the season. And thus, the, the best shot that the Expos were ever going to have to win a World Series dies due to owners trying to hoard more wealth. That's what it is large scale. But there are some kind of smaller issues that are at play here as well. One of them being debate over whether or not to institute a revenue sharing model. And if they were to institute it, to what extent would it be implemented? And obviously, this is going to be a big deal to teams in smaller markets like Montreal. Attendance is pretty good in the 94 season. They're averaging about 25,000 fans. But when the strike is officially ended because of a ruling by U.S. Judge Sonia Sotomayor, Mm-hmm. After eight months of that strike, Sonia puts an end to it, but a revenue sharing model is not instituted, at least to the extent that the Expos were hoping for. And now as a small market team, their financial department runs some projections. And if they were to keep the team together, it would cost $25 million in the red. So they go to the owners and say, hey, can we please have more money so that we can keep together this amazing baseball team that this city loves and could very well establish us as a powerhouse. And the owners said, no, we like money more than we like our fans and then we like baseball. To be clear, they said no. No, no, as in we, we have, you have non-money. But I mean, this, from this, everything falls apart for the Expos. They have the fire sell-off their best players for pennies on the dollar because again, other teams knew that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So they don't get good prospects back in a different world. Maybe they could have then ran their team kind of like the Marlins do, but just the reality of the negotiating, they weren't able to get returns. Fan attendance plummets. Moises is going to stick around still for two more seasons. 95 season ends early due to that shoulder injury. uh, The same one that cost him his 91 season. Coming back in 96, he hits 281 with a 339 OBP, 797 OPS. It's not good enough to make the All-Star game. It is good enough to finish 24th in MVP voting. Not going to list all the is people. Is that even a second been. vote? That's at least one. Is it just the one? Well, because how far down the ballot does it go? I think they you rank your top five. It might be top 10. Whatever it is, he was included most likely on one ballot. And on that basis, he finishes top 25 in MVP voting. But after this, his contract is expired. The Expos are in no position to bring him back. But a team that is in a position to bring him in, they have that beautiful startup money. It's the 97 Florida Marlins. He's a landmark signing for the 97 Marlins. Oh, my goodness. He has a great year. Makes his second All-Star game. Uh, He would finish top 10 in MVP voting again. Hits 23 homers. 292 with an 866 OPS. Pretty good. And of course, famously, Marlins sneak in as a wild card in 97, go all the way to the World Series, where they do beat the Cleveland Indians in seven games. Moise Salou had himself a World Series that year. He hit 321 with three homers and nine RBI. Most years, this is probably good enough to win World Series MVP, but was not good enough in 97 due to the excellent pitching of Levon Hernandez 
So Levon takes that MVP, but Moises does get himself a ring. The Marlins, though, of course, don't have much money themselves. So they're not going to be able to afford to keep this team together. So their star signing of one year comes in and with a Kawhi Leonard-esque season, immediately goes and gets the bag somewhere else. It's going to sign with the Houston Astros, still the National League at this time. 98 puts together, again, one of the best seasons of his career. Third in MVP voting, gets his second Silver Slugger award. Across 159 games, he would hit 312 with a 399 OBP and a 981 OPS to go with 38 homers and 124 RBI. Like, I knew Moise Salou was good, but I did not know Moise Salou was nice like this. Moise Salou could swing the fucking bat. This is and this is kind of like a Bobby Bonilla re-education in terms of the actual level of talent that was there. Exactly. And, and I wanted so badly when I saw he finished third in 94. I'm like, tell me that was one of the years Bobby Bonilla was top three, too. Alas, it wasn't. That would have been too good. But yeah, Moises has the great year in 98. And coming into 99, uh, he's very serious about getting the most out of his body. But we go back to a lot of that basketball played on concrete. He's running on a treadmill in the offseason before the 99 season starts. And tears his ACL, just running on a treadmill. There's no cutting. There's no anything. There's just an ACL that snaps. And with that snap, so goes his 99 season. So for the second time in his career already, Moise Salou has to miss an entire season due to injury. You might think coming back from that, he's going to slack off a little bit. Uh, and you'd be dead fucking wrong. Moise Salou has one of the best years of his career coming back in 2000. At age 33, doesn't make the All-Star game, which is a bit of highway robbery because across 126 games, he hits 355 with a 416 OBP and an OPS of 1.039. This is, this is 2000? This is the 2000 season. Okay, so we got to see who is our memento core that is going to get banned for taking the spot. Oh, sorry, no, it was Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr. and Sarah Sosa as the starters. We're the starters, yeah. So I'm not saying Moises deserved to start in 2000. But if you're going to tell me for the National League... Well, so, so if we go to the outfield, I don't know who the fuck Steve Finley is. He got two All-Star games, so... Oh, no, he was on the World Series winning Diamondback, so I hate him. <laughs> I mean, this seems like Steve Finley's our memento core. Steve Finley is banned from the Hall. And uh, in the RTG universe, Moises Alou, now after this... 2000 season is a four-time all-star surging back and coming into the 2001 season i think people knew that they done goofed a little bit because he does make the all-star game in 2001 with slightly worse but still very good numbers uh with that 355 416 1039 2001 he hits 331 with a 396 obp and a 949 ops 14th in mvp voting that year but after this, Houston Astros, they again find themselves at a bit of a financial crossroads, similar to the Expos, similar to the Marlins. They just don't have the money. So he enters free agency and 2001 signs with the Chicago Cubs. 02 season, finds himself in and out of the lineup a little bit. Injuries do hamper him, so his numbers fall off a little bit. But after this, again, we've already talked about when he had the treadmill incident, he was very dedicated, wanted to get himself back in shape. So for the 2003 season, 
He comes in hot, is over 300 for most of the season. Gets pretty cold in September, though. But we're not concerned about his regular season stats in his age 36 season. We're concerned with what happens in those playoffs. In left field, that faithful fly ball that's hit by Luis Castillo. I really don't think Bartman would have gotten as much shit if Alou did not immediately react as angrily as he did. He immediately slams his glove down to the ground, points at the ump, points at the fan. That That is like very much what I immediately think of when I think of Bartman is the reaction. Yeah, I mean, just immediately slamming it down. So I don't think he gets as much shit if it's not for Moises' reaction, but... And we already went through how the inning goes from there. So we don't need to go through that. But the other thing that I always just found interesting about this incident is it's funny the parallels with Bill Buckner in that it's remembered as like the turning moment of the series. Like, oh, wow, they blew that and like they lost because of that. And also, like, I guess you can put the Ray Allen shot in this category where you think of it as the moment that the championship was lost. That was game six. There's still a game seven to be played after this. But as as a sufferer of the Ray Allen shot, you know. You know in that moment. I mean, yeah. look, when the Sixers were up two against the Celtics in these playoffs. I didn't want to say it, but thank home. you. No, when you didn't win it there, when you had that chance, you know you're not going to get another chance as good as that. The Cubs do go on to lose that. Other than this fielding mishap, it was actually a really good playoffs for Moises. He hit 500 in the LDS, uh, which was a tough five-game series against the Braves with the OPS of 1074. For the NLCS, he hit 310 with uh, 907 OPS, two homers, five RBI. Like Throughout his career, he is a good postseason performer, but he was not a good enough fielder. The injuries, I'm sure, sapped some of that athleticism. Perhaps Moises Alou of 10 years earlier is able to get up and make that catch, but not this Moises Alou. And what else can you say? It's terrible. Steve Bartman has still not made a public appearance. No, and if people like John Hinckley can walk up to Ronald Reagan and shoot Ronald Reagan, someone could kill Bartman. I will say, like, the the, the Cubs organization has tried to do right by Steve Bartman. I just want that to be said, at least. They did send him a ring in 2016 when they won the World Series, which he tried... It was a very good gesture, and like he's been invited back many times, and it's basically an open invite to him at this point that says, if you want to, when you want to, you're welcome back, and we will celebrate and honor you. But Steve Bartman's still keeping that distance at this point. But enough about Steve Bartman, enough about his headset, enough about his glasses. We're getting back to Moises. Moises would admit after the fact, yes, I was frustrated in the moment. He would go on to say, I wasn't going to make the catch anyway. When he was asked about those comments, he would then say, I would never say that. I definitely could have made the catch. I probably just wanted to make the guy feel better. Whichever angle you want to believe, Moises has been on all sides of it. So, and at least one point, he's been truthful and correct. I'm playing both sides. That way you come out on top both ways. But coming off of that, you know, a lesser player might have let that moment of frustration define the rest of their career. Moises didn't. He actually comes back in 2004. He's going to make his fifth All-Star game. He finishes 14th in MVP voting, thanks to his 293 batting average with a 361 OVP. 
919 OPS. And let's keep in mind, he's 37 at this point. Like he's starting to get older and he's still putting up very good production as a corner outfielder. And also importantly, still playing in the National League where he can't be hidden as a DH. His contract, that three years, $27 million, is up after 2004. So Moises was a free agent. One thing I neglected to mention earlier, when he's playing for the Expos from 92 on, he is playing for his father. Oh, Felipe shit. Alou is the manager of the Expos. Way to bury the lead. Because I, I didn't even bother to check that at first because like, I remembered watching Felipe Alou manage the Expos when I could remember watching them as like a six, seven-year-old. So I always assumed like, oh, he like took over in like 98. No, Felipe Alou was like the manager for that 94 season even. So buried the lead a little bit, my bad. But Felipe Alou, now after this 04 season for the 05 season, he's managing the Giants. He's able to pull a couple strings and get his son to come play for him. So father and son, they call themselves Rojas, but father and son Alou back together in San Fran and... Felipe continues his form, or Moises continues his form across 123 games. Pitched 321 with a 400 OBP, 918 OPS, good enough to make his sixth All-Star game. He'll play one more year for the Giants, but injuries are starting to catch up with him. He only plays 98 games, still a 301 average, 923 OPS. Becomes a free agent. Could retire at this point, but... Entering his age 40 season, he chooses to sign with the New York Mets. The Mets blow a seven-game lead with 17 games remaining against the Philadelphia Phillies. Probably my favorite baseball season of all time still, even more so than when they won the World Series. An incredible year. Who else had an incredible year that year was Felipe Alou. For I mean Moises? Year. God damn it. Moises. I do mean Moises. Moises only plays 87 games this year, his age 40 season. And in that season, he does go for a 30-game hitting streak, which made him the first and to-date only player to have a 30-game hitting streak at age 40 or higher. He's the oldest player in MLB history to have a hitting streak of at least 30 games. Like, I wouldn't have guessed there were any if you had asked me before this, so I'm not hugely surprised by that. Pretty damn impressive, but his body continues to break down. 2008, he only plays in 15 games. Still has a 347 batting average across 50 ABs. So slinging that bat and still hitting as good as ever. But he does concede his body's breaking down. It's about time for him to get out of here. He will make one more appearance as professional baseball player. 2009 at the World Baseball Classic. Playing for Father Felipe one more time for the Dominican Republic. This could have been a beautiful moment. Unfortunately, they are knocked out in pool play because of a 2-1 upset by the Netherlands. Felipe Alou went 0-1. God damn it, Moises Alou went 0-1 with a walk in that World Baseball Classic. And that's about it for Moises, a member of an illustrious family in baseball history. They should be the Rojases. Uh, and in fact, Felipe did have one son, Luis who did go by Luis Rojas. Luis also made it to the major leagues. Luis Famous also Yankee. became a manager. Famous Yankee. I'm glad that he stood up for himself, even if he did it on the Yankees. Everybody gets to have at least one redeemable characteristic. Moises, like you said, James, I look at him along those kind of same lines of a Bobby Bonilla, where you know the name, you know he's famous for this one thing, 
Bobby Bonilla for getting paid in perpetuity, Moise Salou for slamming his glove. But both of them very good players in their own right. Some incredible peaks. Moise does retire as a 303 career hitter. So batting average over 300. He only got like 1.7% of the vote his first year of Hall of Fame eligibility. So he was removed from the ballots, but an incredible career in spite of his injuries. Again, missed two entire years due to injuries and still at age 40 was able to produce at this level. Missed two years for injuries. Well, I mean, the thing is, even with them beat, like they were consecutive. Oh, I was thinking Monica Sellis. Yeah, Monica Sellis. (laughs) Oh, Monica Sellis, too. I, I mean, at all, at all Your times. Your brain is so Philly centric. No, I, my brain is so Embiid centric. I'm thinking <laughs> it is as well pretty Embiid beautiful at all that times. That's the first thing you went to. But no, that's my guy. Member of one of the most famously misnumbered families in baseball history. Who got his training methods from Patches O'Houlihan by pissing on his hands. If Steve Bartman knew that, maybe he wouldn't have been so eager to reach for the foul ball. But. Nonetheless, Moise Salou, a World Series champion, at least for his own right, with those 97 Marlins. And I do submit a guy. I think he's had a decent shot, a better percentage than 1.7. But we have another top-tier guy to consider. Yes. Fans can be very, very stupid and very bad and do some evil or moronic things. But you know what? We've heard about some bad fan interactions already. So I I was kind of feeling about taking this in a different direction. I'm going to talk to you both about Fabrice Mwamba. Fabrice Mwamba was born on April 6th, 1988 in Kinshasa, then Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. When he was six, his father fled the country to the UK, seeking asylum for political persecution, and eventually gets granted indefinite leave to remain, at which point he's allowed to send for his family to come over. So Fabrice... The rest of his family come over in 1999 uh, when he's 11 years old. Despite having arrived in this country not really knowing English and also not having previously played this sport, Fabrice started playing soccer like most of the kids his age. And again, despite this being pretty late for someone to pick it up, especially over in the UK, he quickly takes to the game. And within three years, he had an offer to join Arsenal's Hale End Academy. After this three is giving years, me shades of Joel Embiid. Kind of. I mean, that's more of an indictment on like the lack of grassroots sports organization in Africa, which is caused by many issues not of their own making. But that would be a very long discussion that we do not need to get into at this exact moment. Unless, James, I can see in your face that maybe you no, want to no, stay. No, no, no. It's, look, we've done parts of it before. We'll do parts of it again. We can continue with our boy Fabrice right now. So after three years in the Hailand Academy... Fabrice makes his first team debut at 17 years old on October 25th, 2005, in a League Cup match against a team that Diaz hates, Sunderland, in the Stadium of Light. See, the sad thing about Sunderland is since I've been a Newcastle supporter, I think we've been in the same league for like two years. It's been at least four or five since we got a derby. So really just the biggest shame of it is that Sunderland is so bad at soccer that I don't even get to see Newcastle beat them. Uh, the uh, the northeast of England. What a wonderful place. So, August 2006, Fabrice ends up joining Birmingham City on loan, establishes himself as a regular starter in central midfield, and he ends up getting voted the club's young player of the season as he helps them finish second and get promoted to the Premier League. 
shortly after this season, Birmingham is really pushing to try to keep him. And Arsenal and Arsene Wenger really like Fabrice, but their midfield is pretty stacked right now, just a couple of years removed from their invincible winning season. And they're still they're one of the best teams in the world at this point and just don't have space for him at this point. So they do let Fabrice go to Birmingham on a permanent deal for about like four million pounds, which at the time was a pretty significant amount pre the insane soccer inflation, especially for a teenager who had not had any top flight experience. But it was a good move. Fabrice slots right back into Birmingham's midfield and has a really strong first Premier League season. But Birmingham get relegated on the last day of the season after wins by both Reading and Bolton. So he wants to stay in the Premier League. Teams have looked at this teenager and said, yeah, he's good enough to be in the Premier League. So he gets signed by Bolton just a couple months later for a fee of about $5 million. I like this Bolton team because this Bolton team had Stu Holden on it, which was one of the first Americans I got to watch in the Premier League. Once again, Mwamba quickly established himself as a starter at his new team, plays every game of the 08-09 campaign, and Bolton end up becoming like a comfortably mid-table team over the next couple of years. They're not really too worried about relegation like a lot of their peers. 2010-2011, he partners with Stu Holden in the midfield. And they start the season off really strongly. Uh, At one point, they're up to 7th on the table. Unfortunately, Holden would then suffer a horrific leg break due to a Johnny Evans. Terrible, terrible tackle in in a game against Manchester United. Bolton then falters, loses 7 of their last 9, and they fall all the way down to 14th. Still not close to relegation, but nowhere near the heights they had gotten to. When you took the dramatic pause after Johnny Evans, made it sound like you'd said a Johnny Evans, and I was afraid I was about to learn of some terrible British version of like Tommy John injuries that soccer players (laughs) get that I was just unaware of up to this point. Johnny Johnny Evans Evans is just bad. No, the Johnny Evans surgery is just the reverse. They take something out of your elbow and just throw it down in your leg. You can kick a little stronger now. I'm actually worried about Johnny Evans right now because he's not good and had just left Leicester after getting relegated. And Manchester United just re-signed him. He used to play there until like 2015 or something like that. And they re-signed him to what they call a short-term contract just for the preseason. And they're playing Arsenal in a preseason friendly tomorrow. And I'm worried they're just going to have Johnny Evans out there just break someone's leg. Because, you know, why not have him injure someone on a team that we're going to be challenging with? There's a point where I have to be principal and say, like, it's bad to attack players, but there is a level to which it's kind of cool that a team can just hire a guy to be a mercenary for a little bit on the field. I mean, you'd think that Manchester United, who have unlimited money, wouldn't need to do that, but what do I know? So back to Premier League, back to Bolton, back to Fabrice. The malaise they had at the end of the 2010-2011 season continues on through the start of the next campaign. And by the start of New Year, they're bottom of the league. Things are not looking good. However, thanks to a pretty favorable draw uh, in the FA Cup, they do make it all the way to the quarterfinals. And in the quarterfinals, they have a matchup against Tottenham Hotspur at White Hart Lane on March 17, 2012. Bolton score quickly. Tottenham then get an equalizer. And it's 1-1 in the 41st minute when Fabrice Mwamba falls over. First seemed pretty innocuous. Then they realized that he was suffering from cardiac arrest. 
The medical teams for both sides went out to the field, and so did a 48-year-old Tottenham fan named Andrew Diener. But Diener was not just a you know, normal fan. Dr. Andrew Diener was a consultant cardiologist at the London Chest Hospital, and he was only there that day with his brothers Jeremy and Jonathan because his nephew Samuel couldn't make it and wanted someone to use his season ticket. He had cycled to the game and padlocked his bike against the fence outside the stadium. After seeing Mwamba collapse, he told his brothers, quote, I should go down there. I could help. He ran up to the gangway where he spoke to some stewards who were like, hey, we're not going to let you on. Who, the, who, who do you think you are? Until an older steward he had known from his time going to Spurs games recognized him and let him go onto the pitch after he explained his profession. Dr. Diener spoke with the medical staff who were performing CPR in Mwamba and told them that he needs to go to the chest hospital immediately rather than to the closer North Middlesex hospital, which had been their plan. Like they were thinking, you know, speed was the quickest hospital we can get him to. And he's like, no, based on what's happened, he needs to go see to this specialist place. He said, quote, I could have fallen flat in my face. I'd never been on the pitch before, but I didn't really have time to think. I could see them doing CPR. I ran over. I'm a cardiologist. I said, can I help? They were five minutes in at this stage. I can't even remember hearing the crowd. Diener helped get Mwamba into the ambulance and took over coordinating his care, including continued CPR and IV medication. There was actually a little story about how one of Bolton's doctors still had his cleats on because, you know, normally they have to run onto the pitch if something happens. So he's in the back of an ambulance almost falling over because he has cleats on in this slippery surface trying to insert an IV. So Diener helps get Mwamba into the ambulance. They try 15 different defibrillator shocks across both the stadium, tunnel, and ambulance ride with no response. The team finally gets him to the hospital, where Diener's team had actually gotten prepared because they heard the match on the radio. And when they heard what was happening, they're like, all right, he's going to be coming to us. We got to get ready. So they had everything set up all ready for them when they got there. They're working on Mwamba for 30 minutes, more defibrillator shocks. Finally, they're able to hear a faint heartbeat. After 78 minutes of Fabrice Mwamba being legally dead. Even so, this is a very small ray of hope on, like, in their professional experience. They, and they place him into a medically induced coma. Diener and Mwamba's other doctors, including Bolton team medic Dr. Jonathan Tobin, believe that even if he survived, he would suffer from brain damage or other lifelong disabilities due to the sheer length of time that he was dead. Quote, nobody expected him to leave that hospital, Tobin said. Everyone thought he was going to have some sort of brain damage or be permanently disabled. If you ask a cardiologist, nobody has a downtime of 78 minutes and makes a full recovery. Nobody. Are you allowed to list having been dead as a pre-existing condition? Are you required to list having been dead as a pre-existing condition if you are getting uh, health insurance? Well, he lives in the UK, so. I mean, they still have health insurance. They just all have health insurance. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the NHS really cares that much if he was... Dead. dead or alive because if they're ever seeing him after this he's alive so I don't think that matters too much. So Mwamba's condition continues to improve and two days later his heart is beating without the use of medication and his arms and legs are moving. Later that day he gets removed from ventilator and was able to recognize and speak to friends and family. Dr. Diener said if I was ever going to use the term miraculous it can be used here. He's made a remarkable recovery so far Two hours after regaining consciousness, I whispered in his ear, what's your name? And he said, Fabrice Mwamba. I said, I hear you're a really good footballer. And he said, I try. I had a tear in my eye. 
By March 21st, hospital issued an update stating that his outcome has been extraordinary. He exceeded our expectations and normal life is within the spectrum of possibility. And then finally, on April 16th, Fabrice Mwamba was released from the hospital after having been fitted with an ICD. There's this final picture of Mwamba standing with Dr. Diener and Dr. Sam uh, Mohidin, who was another cardiologist at the chest hospital. He said, I'm naturally very pleased to be discharged from the hospital. I would like to take this opportunity to pay tribute to every single member of staff who played a part in my care. Their dedication, professionalism, and expertise is simply amazing, and I'll be forever in their debt. I also wish to say thank you to all the many well-wishers who have sent thousands of messages of support. Mwamba, unfortunately, was not able to play again and announced his retirement on August 15th, which, as you might expect, did cause you know some struggles. Previously healthy 24-year-old top-level athlete not being able to play the thing that he loved again. But he's been open about you know how useful therapy was for him. And with therapy and time, you know, he's had a, a really full life since then. he got married, he's had four kids, he's worked in the media, got a degree in sports journalism, uh, and he's been working on getting his coaching licenses so he can be a coach. During an interview in 2021, Wamba said, every day is a miracle. I know people have gone the same route as me and never come out. Sidebar, two days after he got released from the hospital, a player in Italy collapsed of the same thing and died because they did not have like the same level of care, which is really fucking wild. Gotta ask why the Italian crowd didn't have any cardiologists in the audience. I know, right? You know, that's... I, I don't want to, I don't make a big joke. A, a, a guy did die, so it does. It is pretty morbid, but yeah. It, that's it, fine. It, I already made the joke. It's fine. Yeah. I'm the one that's going to hell. So, you know, he, he, he just said that I can do things that most people uh, have gone through this journey wouldn't have been able to do. I can move around and do everything I want to. Every day is a blessing. And to this day... Uh, he still considers Dr. Diener, Dr. Tobin, Dr. Muadin, paramedic Peter Fisher, and Spurs medic Shabazz Mughal his, quote, guardian angels. So, hey, look, a fan actually saved a life this time instead of stabbing someone in the spine or I, cursing the city. specifically <laughs> not in the spine. Not in the spine. Incredibly not in the spine. specifically not in, in the, the back, spine. but not in the spine. Yes. I mean, certainly a memorable fan interaction. I know about it, which again, anytime it's in soccer stuff prior to like us doing this is significant. So let's think through them. One early thing that I have to say in your favor, Xavier, is not only do you have Dr. Diener, but you've got the most fans themselves actually involved in your interaction because you do crucially also have the doctors at the hospital that are listening to the game and because of that are able to get ready. So you've beaten us on quantity, but I think the discussion has to turn to whether or not the quality of either Diaz or I's interactions can, can overcome that. That's true. And I, I did like both of your stories, even if Diaz could not remember which Alu he was talking about sometimes. Listen, I, they don't know if they're Alu or Rojas. They get names confused over there. I thought, why not? Let's just, it's a, it's a Felipe, it's a Moises, it's a Woozy, it's a Wazi. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, obviously Xavier's story is by far the most positive fan interaction. Sure. Um, yeah, that's not a question. It's the only positive fan interaction. <laughs> between a, a grown man having a tantrum and Moises Alou throwing his glove down, the other two are not too good. The case that I made for Monica Salas is I think it's the most 
impactful. I think you, Diaz, like very early on kind of cop to that because look, maybe the Cubs have more than one World Series, but they got their World Series. I mean, look, it's still Bartman. Andrew Abbott, if you have listened through this entire thing, I am so sorry. We do appreciate your listenership. I mean, I hopefully like I can look back fondly on Donovan McNabb throwing up in the Super Bowl now because we then went on to win one. True, exactly. That being said, like Monica Sellis getting stabbed changes the course of tennis history. Oh, it certainly does. Yeah, the the, the course of tennis history is changed by Monica Sellis. The course of Fabrice Mwamba continuing to be alive was mm-hmm. changed by his interaction. Absolutely. I do think just based on well, I can't even say on pure like sports gravitas because Monica Sellis was fucking Monica Sellis, but Moise Salou is just very slept on in terms of how good he was. And the fact that he twice in his career missed an entire season due to injury and came back immediately much better. Like had to basically get cast off from a good team, in some cases a World Series winning team, three different times by my count from your story because they just couldn't afford everybody. With all that being said, like, does that also not in and of itself show that Moises's interaction is maybe not quite as central to his career as either Mwamba's or Sellas's. No, that's fair. I think it's the first thing that a casual fan thinks about when they think of Moise Salu. Sure. But just to say, there is more to the story. I am fascinated to have discovered that he is the owner of the only 30-plus hitting streak by a player that's 40 or older. That is a fascinating nugget to discover. I learned that he was like 10 times better than I thought. Like, if nothing else, I thank you for that. I had no idea how good Moise Salou was. Here's, I think, the the way to sum it up. Fabrice Mwamba and Monica Seles, those incidents are like the Fabrice Mwamba and Monica Seles incidents. And this is the one where it is the Steve Bartman. Bartman. And he specifically does not want to, you know, people talking about this for him anymore. I feel like we've done him a disservice by bringing it back up, which is why we have to focus on the Moises aspect of it. Look, if, if Steve Bartman wants to make his first public appearance since 2003, come onto this podcast and answer for us digging up some dirt again, I invite him to do so. Steve, if you're out there, meant no harm. It's just a crazy <laughs> story. I'm sorry that you had to be so close to his pee hands. The other thing. Do we want to let someone I in that just yeah, is pissing want, on their hand? I, I don't want to strategically. You know, condo- I don't want to condone strategically. that behavior. Strategically, I don't want to doing it for no reason. If we let that happen, then every athlete that wants to get into our illustrious hall will just pee on their hands, thinking that it's going to help their case. We do not want to set that precedent. Look, I'm not saying it should help his case. I'm just saying we are being very prejudiced <laughs> if we are saying that it is a negative. I'm torn between Mwamba and Celis because I'm trying to figure out which one is further down the line. There are the two different poles of the spectrum, and I can't tell which one goes further. Again, Xavier's got me on the quantity of fans. I could, again, be a heartless individual and say the magnitude of the interaction is one guy's life versus the fate of the tennis world. I mean, to be fair, they had, like, all top-level soccer has put an extra emphasis on having everything you need for a cardiac event at stadiums now. And we saw that happen with Christian Eriksen in the Euros, which like if we hadn't had, you know, the incident with Mwamba, there's a chance that when Christian Eriksen 
has the same thing. He doesn't survive. There's been a lot, a lot of like talk and research about how it's actually like extremely difficult to scan for the heart defects and like things that can cause sudden cardiac arrest in like very healthy 20 year old athletes. And even though they, they scan as much as they can and do all these tests, they know that they can't stop it. So that's why they've increased their what they have at stadiums to treat it if it were to happen. So it did change like this, the health and safety protocols if you want to go in that aspect. I think you win out in that aspect because Monica herself has said they've made changes in security. They changed the direction the tennis players face when they're sitting down. But she said she doesn't think that anything has fundamentally changed. We have recent instances, like in 2009, which I guess isn't... Xavier thinks that's ancient history nowadays. But in 2009, Roger Federer had the fan come on with the flag. So if we're talking about actual impact, yours does seem to have had more of the impact on the sport and the health and safety of the people involved in the sport and how the sport functions, though the history of the sport maybe not as much. I hate calling 2009 ancient history, but if you think about where the world was in 2009 and then where sports were in 2009 compared to now, it is multiple generations away from where we're at now. You know, oh, I was only in high school. Oh, God, I'm 30. Like, 2009 was a long, long time ago when it comes to how quickly the the world changes, especially sports. Okay, well, clearly, if the sands of time are ticking against us in general, then they're ticking against us on this decision even more so. Uh, I'm a positive person. I like positive interactions, which is, again, the reason why I went positive. And I like the idea that, oh, the fact that a fan just happened to be a cardiologist who was only there because his nephew couldn't make it that day. And he was able to convince the steward to let him on the pitch so he could help. And then he really took over for the doctors that were there and convinced them to go to his hospital, which is further away because he knew they'd be better suited to make sure he survives. I like that a lot. I love the Sela story because I love the comeback aspect, which Mwamba unfortunately did not get, except for, again, you know, just being alive, which I think is still important. <laughs> it's still very important. The fact that Celis was able to... It doesn't feel like much has changed because I feel like someone could unfortunately do that again if they really wanted to. Uh, probably probably yeah like the fans act probably terrible. got better metal detectors but like you can 3d print a knife uh, australian open i doubt there's like i doubt they'd even have but i mean i guess i've never been to a tennis tournament but like at a smaller tournament certainly but i don't want to get into that. that that's too depressing for me to think about it but fans acting badly i feel like we see a lot because unfortunately it happens a lot i do like the idea of recognizing a situation where a fan acted positively but that's just me what you thinking, Diaz? So, Xavier, I'm very sympathetic to your plea that we should be recognizing a fan that had a positive interaction. However, it was very specific verbiage that we used. We are not to consider the fan in the fan interaction. We are about the guy. And with that being said, I do feel that a big aspect of guidem is being a cultural touch point. And that is why the winning argument for me is James's argument that Monica Sells was the punchline for a C-plot in the Seinfeld episode. We need to recognize this. We need to honor this. No fewer than three rock songs. And no fewer than three rock songs as well. All right. 
So though that may be a silly and arbitrary reason, I do posit that this is a silly and arbitrary podcast. I believe we are hey, here don't, to... Don't denigrate our, our, our work like this. Our deliberations are very oh, thorough. Those, those are positive characteristics <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But with that being the case, I do believe we have reached a verdict. And it is this hall's great honor to recognize one of the great comeback stories in tennis history from being very literally stabbed in the back to then come back and still regain major winning form. Who knows how great her career could have been had she not been stabbed in the back. We do know that because she was stabbed in the back, we're talking about her today. We're now welcoming her into our hall. Monica Sellis, welcome to the Hall of Guy. Welcome, Monica Sellis. We promise you can let your guard down here. No one's coming after you. We're happy to have you here. Thank you to you, Diaz, for giving her those honorifics. And I think I have some other thanks in order, if you all don't mind. Those are to our good friend, producer Craig, and all the Craig coders, to our musical director, Don Ham, for our lovely theme music, and to you, dear listener, especially you, Andrew, for putting up with the thorough recounting of the Barman incident. Hey, if you guys like what you hear, you can rate, review, and share easily and conveniently with the link bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. And if you are listening to this on the Monday that this comes out, uh, anytime between about 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., I am hopefully safely out there biking right now from Baltimore to Philadelphia to see the Orioles take on the Phillies. This stupid thing, much like last year, is being done, at least in my mind, partially to figure out how to contribute some funds to local abortion funds. We last year contributed to the Baltimore Abortion Fund and the Pennsylvania Fund. Uh, And I'll be adding in Delaware this year because you know what? It wasn't right for me to forget about Delaware there. And I will include information about all of those in the show description. I'm thinking this year I'm going to maintain the current ones I have last year, which was one dime for every mile. I am this year going to, in addition, making sure we get Delaware on that. Let's say I will do a dollar for every mile that I spend in each of the states for a one-time thing in addition to maintaining our other stuff. So that's that's what we'll do this time. Feel free to join in on the fun with that and give some money to worthy causes. Again, all that info in the description. Anything else from you, fellas? As we wrap up this recording, I am sad to report the Annapolis Blues are down 3 nothing at halftime of the East Regional Semifinal. So... There could be a magical comeback to come, but if the scoreline does hold up the Blues one last time, what a great season it was. If you're a fan and you want to heckle, heckle based on physical ability or things that have happened in the game. Don't heckle on characteristics or get physical in any way with anyone else because then you are a terrible person. As the PA would say at MNT Bank Stadium, don't be a jerk. Up the blues. I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as a random man once said in a convenience store, you're not that guy, though. You're not that guy. Oh, there's the corgi. 
All right, this is a corgi podcast now. Yeah, no, it's a fucking great looking dog. It's a corgi pod now. This is Butters. It is a Butters pod now. That absolutely is a Butters. (laughs) And Chris, but but mostly Butters. Mostly Butters. No, what's good? Ah. I'll, I'll tell you what, Butters just got on the show.